house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. I was wondering if you wanted to go for a beer or something. You gotta go. Just for the exercise, you should go. You want me to romance you, take you to a classy restaurant, no problem. You want me to be a best friend, no problem. I could be whatever you want me to be. This is my partner, Detective Rodriguez. How you doing? What is this about? You were there on the night in question. I'm wondering if maybe you saw something at that bar. Maybe something you don't know you saw. It was dark. Girl with long blue fingernails. Blue fingernails? I think that's a girl that was murdered. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast slow dancing with Gary Sinise in order to own the PC police. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Joe Reed. I am here, as always, with my co-host, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Hello, Joseph. Are you ready to delve into the dark and murky waters surrounding Manhattan in the middle of a crime spree? Very dark, very murky, very looking for Mr. Goodbar. Very looking for Mr. Goodbar. I'm glad you made that note, too. We're going to get into that for sure. There are so many similarities, which is funny because a lot of the reviews I read brought up Taxi Driver, and it's not like I don't see Taxi Driver. But, like, this is very looking for Mr. Goodbar in, in, in very good ways, and I think in, like, very appropriate ways, because I'm pretty sure Mr. looking for Mr. Goodbar was was met with the same kind of, like, mixed, response, confused, yeah. negative, get away from me, don't make me think about these kinds of things re- responses. So, yeah. Looking for Mr. Goodbar, however, is an Oscar nominee. That is true. Tuesday Weld, Best Supporting Actress nominee for Looking very for Mr. Goodbar. Very strange nomination. Very much so. What year was that? Like, 70... Uh, four? No, it's the it's. I think it's seventy seven because it's the same. It's same, the same year it's as Annie Hall. Hall. You're right. You're yeah. absolutely right. Yes. Um, what a strange little confluence that was. A uh, strange though. Taxi Driver is a very strange comparison for this movie. I don't. I get think that maybe it's like the underbelly of like Lower Manhattan is the point, but I don't. I still don't get it. Um, I think it's anytime you get into underbelly of lower Manhattan, I think anytime you get into um, a character relationships that feel like they shouldn't be this way, but but it's making sort of a artistic statement. I think you get into that. I think I think you, I agree with you in that it's much more apt for something like a looking for Mr. Goodbar comp- uh, comparison. But we should say what movie we're talking about. We are talking. We're talking about... not about Taxi Driver. No. We're talking about Sexy Driver. Sexy Driver. This this is our Reader's Choice poll winner by a very thin margin. You said by four votes, right? It was like three or four votes. That's yeah. amazing. Um, but it preve- it prevailed. It is 2003's Jane Campion directed movie In the Cut. And it it narrowly defeated by three or four votes. Shattered Glass, which was 
the be- the best finisher of our other three readers' choice uh, options. We gave our listeners the chance on Twitter to vote in a poll for what would be the fourth and final of our 2003 miniseries, and it was In the Cut and Shattered Glass and the sta- the Station Agent, which also finished pretty respectably, and The Company, which finished a, <laughs> finished a distant fourth. Sorry, Robert Altman, but sorry, Ballet, as a as a concept, but I thought we got in, in, in doing the poll, I, I was gratified to see that there were pockets of enthusiasm for all four of these movies. What did you, what was your experience watching that poll unfold over the course of 24 hours? Uh, it was really interesting because like, strangely, I think some of the most vocal, like people that were tweeting at us were the, or like people that clearly had the strongest feelings were the people that were mentioning the company. Um, Classic uh, small, but vocal fan base. Exactly. And may a lot of those people were excited for us to talk about Robert Altman. So it might be worthwhile for us to think about doing an Altman episode in the future. Come on cookies fortune. I just truly having seen the company in a theater, in a full theater of, a half snoozing audience. <laughs> I can't imagine working up that much enthusiasm for the company. I have to say, I was a little uh, pleased that I did not have to watch it again. Sure, sure. I, I think we got something much more exciting and much more interesting to talk about. As much as I love Nev Campbell and would love to be able to talk about how much I love her on the mic. I will say, of the four movies, the movie that won was the movie I was hoping would win. Not that I wouldn't love to talk about Shattered Glass, because I feel like there's a lot to dig into there. And that is a movie I love but see flaws in. And then The Station Agent, which is a movie I just love. Like, I absolutely adore The Station Agent. It would let us talk about Tom McCarthy and Patricia Clarkson, and I love both of those people. So at some point, there's a good chance once we've let the the uh, 2003 fields repopulate and sort of, you know, lie fallow for a while. We probably won't be doing another 2003 movie for a minute, but when we do, it's good to know that uh, you guys out there were enthusiastic for movies like Shattered Glass and The Station Agent and even The Company. So Shattered Glass, I was genuinely surprised to see that much enthusiasm and to see it close between these two. I know that The Station Agent is a very beloved movie, so I was more so expecting the poll to be between In the Cut and The Station Agent. I see. Um, So it was really interesting to see the enthusiasm for Shattered Glass. Uh, Yeah, definitely tell us what you think about the options or options you want to hear because that was very fascinating. Yeah, and I think we might end up utilizing the the listener's choice option a few more times uh, for various things in, in the, the future. future. So yeah, always a good idea we... to follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. You will get, of course, all of Chris's enjoyably uh, uh, festive cryptic. Content. <laughs> um, and also at this point we would have had, we've uh, launched a listener poll for our 50th episode, like our little anniversary episode that we've done another listener's choice option we don't know what that will be at this point. Uh, but yeah, so we have one already in the can after this. Very exciting. So, Chris, we are, though, as we said, talking about In the Cut, directed by Jane Campion. It was released on limited release October 22nd, 2003. And then a week later on Halloween, it went wide to America, which nothing scares the American public more than 
female sexual pleasure. So truly, it was a most appropriate Halloween opening. It was written for the screen by Jane Campion and Susanna Moore, adapted from Moore's novel of the same name, starring Meg Ryan, Mark Ruffalo, Jennifer Jason Leigh, and Kevin Bacon in a role that I found out later was not credited, which is kind of funny. And I just thought that was bizarre, man. Like, why doesn't he have a screen credit for that role? Yeah. Like, was there some weird behind-the-scenes thing? Is it supposed to be, like, make his character more mysterious? We'll get into it once we get on the other side of the 60-second plot, but I think it's incredibly fascinating that it was those four people in this cast, because at the time, this was the, like, your all-star lineup of when are they ever going to get nominated? Or are they ever going to get nominated? Where, like, Meg Ryan, Jennifer Jason Lee, and Kevin Bacon had for years and years and years been subject of Oscar buzz for various roles. Meg Ryan we've talked about before in our Courage Under Fire episode, which was one of our first episodes. Um, Jennifer Jason Lee, we haven't really gotten a chance to talk to talk about, but we'll get into it in terms of like all the times she has come close. Kevin Bacon has gotten Golden Globe nominations and I think some SAG nominations. And then this very year in 2003, if you read, because we talk about I had gotten the uh, Entertainment Weekly fall preview. If you read the Mystic River advance stuff, a lot of the supporting actor buzz before anybody saw the movie was on Kevin Bacon because he mm-hmm. was the one who sort of... I mean, Tim Robbins had had the Oscar past with directing Dead Man Walking and such, but I feel like a lot of people really... Um, and I think if you read the book Mystic River, the character that Kevin Bacon plays is a lot more prominent as a POV in uh, than he does end up being in the movie. He really is kind of sidelined in the movie. And then at this point for Ruffalo, Ruffalo sort of bursts on the scene with You Can Count On Me, and doesn't get nominated for that. So then after that, everything is sort of like, oh, is this going to be the thing that Ruffalo breaks through in? Since then, Ruffalo has gotten a couple nominations. Jennifer Jason Lee got her one nomination for The Hateful Eight. Uh, Meg Ryan and Kevin Bacon remain Oscar virgins, although nobody remains a virgin after this movie. So, Chris. Yes. Get us get us to the point where we can start talking about those wonderful actors by Laying it out for us, what is the plot of the erotic thriller, let's say? Right? That feels like the yeah. right genre. Erotic, tense, cop drama. Poem. Yeah. Lots yeah. of stuff. Lots of stuff going on, all swirling around with Jane Campion's sort of typical, I've got some things to say about men and women you know what i mean right 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 right. but right now we're not talking about themes we are just going to talk about plot so chris i'm gonna bring up my timer on my phone hold on chris i have one minute on the clock are you ready with the plot for in the cut i am go Okay, Meg Ryan plays Franny Avery. She's a teacher. She teaches literature, but she's also a writer on the side as well. One day she is in a bar uh, with one of her students. It's a little creepy. Um, And in the basement, she tries to go to the bathroom, but ends up seeing someone getting a blowy. The man that's getting the blowy has a three of spades tattoo on, like, his wrist. Very creepy, supposedly sexy. Um, But then, uh, cut to a few weeks later, some woman is murdered, um, and her, like, body parts are left outside the balcony of Franny's home, and she is uh, investigated by uh, 
His name is Giovanni. Um, he is a detective played by Mark Ruffalo. He has a very sexy mustache. Um, and they become sexually involved. Meanwhile, more murders are piling up. And uh, Franny is, like, kind of emotionally fraught by all of it. And, like, there's the possibility that, oh, Giovanni could be the actual fucking killer. But, no, it turns out that it is his partner. Meanwhile, her sister, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, is also murdered. Um, but then they hug at the end. Well, you got it. You got. My, I was I worried you were gonna. We're not gonna get to Jennifer Jason Lee, but you did. So there we go. I, I mean, I like looped back to. You her did. You kind of looped back to her. You were just like, her. hold on a second, let me circle the block. But yeah, there's not like, there's not a lot of plot necessarily. But there's a lot movie. of there's just a lot of texture. There's a so lot of pertinent texture. Yes, a pertinent atmosphere. A lot of the, the stuff s- with her student. She's she seems to be. She's an English teacher, but she's also. Um, Seemingly doing a lot of research into slang. slang. And, and and she's, like, really drawn to, like, poetry that's on the subway, I It's get. one like, of these movies where, for a second, you're like, is this movie aware of the kind of white female privilege going on that she's, like, taking this black student of hers to a bar, and he's, like, in high school, um, to talk about this slang stuff, and there's this, like sort of charged sexual element between them. And you're just like, Jane Campion knows what ground she's treading on here, right? And it turns out she does, but she's doing it in such a way that, like, she doesn't give the audience a whole lot of, like, comfortable distance from which we can just be like, ah, I see what you're doing here. Which is actually good, because it does make it all feel all the more dangerous in terms of, like, you know, how exploitative are we being about this notion of this black male student as potentially sexually dangerous, right? Yes. Where, like, sexual danger kind of surrounds Meg Ryan's character throughout this movie. That's sort of the point of this movie, that there's, you know, there's a killer of women, plus this, like, very sort of, like, gruff and sexually forward if, you know, bordering on sexually menacing cop, plus his, like, fully misogynist partner and yeah. before we find out and then she also the has a stalker played by kevin bacon but that she, i could yes. get to like that that subplot could kind of fully be excised but there's what's interesting i think about this movie is the way that jane campion turns like a bunch of red herrings into just various different discussion points for how like men are awful um and i think it's it's one of those movies where something doesn't have to become plot necessary in order for it to be saying something essential about Mm -hmm. what we're talking about this character. Now, ultimately this is essentially just sort of like a um, serial killer is on the loose kind of a movie. And in a lot of other hands, we've seen this movie become, you know, essentially a pot boiler where it's not anything that's aspiring to anything I think some of the reviews of In the Cut, we'll talk about how negative the reviews are soon enough, but I think a lot of the negative reviews of In the Cut were basically like, oh, this is essentially, you're taking like a movie like, do you remember that movie Jennifer 8? Totally. Like a movie like that, or like Final Analysis or something like that, those sort of like early 90s thrillers mm-hmm. that don't really have a whole lot else to recommend them beyond just like they're you know if you want to see something that's sort of like tense and vaguely sexy or whatever you'll watch it but there's no sort of higher aspiration to them and i think a lot of the critics saw in the cut as a movie like that 
at that Jane Campion sort of added a lot of like gauzy frou-frou to, you know what I mean? That she was, Mm -hmm. you know, putting her sort of high-minded airs from her reputation as this, you know, fancy filmmaker on top of material that didn't accommodate it. And I see it kind of the opposite way in that I think it's taking the Jane Campion movie and making it very sort of dangerous and dread like mm-hmm. dreadful is the wrong word because dreadful seems to imply badness but like filled with dread and yeah. and sexiness about it and it's well no because so well anyway i was gonna say that <laughs> i have a, a different angle on the movie and i think it's kind of difficult to interpret you mentioned like the jennifer eight response like this movie's kind of responding to those kind of movies. And I think it's kind of difficult to interpret this movie in these times because we don't really have those type of movies before. Nope, they've all gone away. I've I've complained a lot that, like, we don't have the erotic thriller anymore. And, like, I guess in the cut is, like, the erotic thriller that I want to see more of. But, like, it definitely... This movie feels like film as film criticism in that this movie is trying to have a dialogue with the way that sex is depicted particularly in those movies but with like just themes of misogyny as well and like I don't feel like I'm fully capable of unpacking all of that a just being a male right but b like you know this feels so locked in a time and even I think it feels a little dated for 2003 and maybe that's why it got so dated's probably the wrong word. It feels like it was responding to a subgenre that at that point was already dead. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. And I think, you know, basing it off of a book where, you know, the the genre, the state of the genre in literature was not the same thing as the state of the genre in movies. So you probably do mm-hmm. have more. It comments on other books of the current era probably a lot better or more aptly. But I also feel like, and maybe it was always this way or maybe it wasn't, but I feel like at this point in her career and certainly currently, that Jane Campion is such a unicorn among filmmakers that it doesn't seem strange to me that Jane Campion is making a movie that doesn't really tether to anything else that's out there. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. Where And I felt that way with Bright Star and Top of the Lake is an interesting example because Top of the Lake could not be more tethered to the types of television that's made today in terms of prestige series that ultimately is about... It kind of ties into uh, to In the Cut in the Way of like a killer of women and we've got to find out who it is. And like in uh, uh, top of the lake feels very similar to, you know, your broad church, your true detective, that kind of thing. But it's very much, you know, under the auspices of Campion's own style. Mm -hmm. But certainly her movies feel like, and probably have always felt like a genre unto themselves. Yeah. So it's interesting to talk about the development of this movie because we, you know, Meg Ryan, as we said, is the lead, but was not always intended to be. This was, 
Nicole Kidman's movie all through development, Nicole Kidman having starred in Jane Campion's The Portrait of a Lady in 1996, which is a movie that got curiously negative reviews, even though I liked it and I've only ever talked to people who've liked it. I don't know about you. I don't have a fresh enough memory of that movie in my mind to really kind of discuss it yeah. qualitatively like that, in a way that I feel like I would feel it. that way. Yeah. But it definitely reeks to me of the type of thing that there's like, I don't want to say backlash, but there's a response or an expectation because it was her follow-up to the piano yeah. and the piano achieved this mountain that it achieved. Yeah. That backlash to the piano, so though, lasted three full movies. Like, it was The Portrait mm-hmm. of a Lady in 96, which was poorly reviewed. Holy Smoke, which is the great forgotten Jane Campion movie, which was 1999. That was Kate Winslet, who had... Peeing. Uh, yes, among other things. Drawing on her... Or writing words on her forehead and sexing up Harvey Keitel, as people in Jane Campion movies must. Um, it's interesting that people compared in the cut to... to Taxi Driver, this being one of the few Jane Campion movies without Harvey Keitel. But Mm -hmm. um, Holy Smoke's a very interesting piece of the Campion puzzle because, again, it's her working with a major actress willing to do pretty daring things. I always think it's incredibly laudable that Kate Winslet, after making Titanic, one of the first movies she makes after, is Holy Smoke with Jane Campion because it Mm -hmm. is the opposite of commercial and it's really daring and it's really much like you're not going to burnish your reputation as um you know rose from the most popular movie of all time by then transitioning to making holy smoke and i think that's and i think you see that also with meg ryan in in the cut as you get an actress looking to really push herself and campion being very willing to accommodate that but originally Nicole was co- was a producer on the movie and still remained a producer on the movie all the way through, but decided to pull out of the starring role, which she said was about her divorce mm-hmm. and not wanting to sort of add to her, you know, <laughs> taking on this kind of fraught and emotionally intense and emotionally intense in the way of... Uh, you know, sex and relationships, that mm-hmm. doing that at the same time of her divorce seems like a lot. I, you can imagine. Yeah. Though it's interesting because Meg Ryan, was this pre or post Proof of Life? It's post, right? It's post. Yeah, because Proof of Life was 2000 because that was during the um, Russell Crowe, that was like part of the initial Russell Crowe backlash which was between Gladiator and the Oscar for Gladiator, he got a whole bunch of bad buzz as being combative and bad, and then he was the home record <laughs> Literally in violent relationship. Yeah. But a lot of that blame, at least culturally speaking, was put on Meg Ryan, so too. So woman. it's like yeah. you have this specter of the way people were disgustingly treating Meg Ryan over this movie that is also about sex and relationships on top of the fact that she was America's sweetheart because of her romantic comedies. Oh, yeah. it's So it's like the perception that was treated to this movie is also looped up in the Meg Ryan of it all. Yeah. Because 
people wanted to hate her, or at least the press seemed to want to hate her because of the relationship with Russell Crowe. Oh, yeah. Like, she absolutely... I mean, the, the sort of downfall of Meg Ryan's career has way too much to do with proof of life in in as a proxy for people blaming her for the end of her marriage which by the way like i know that like we all knew and loved dennis quaid and whatever but it's not like they were ever this like iconic couple as a couple like i know they made like a couple movies together but like it's not like they ever were I don't know anybody who was just like, what are we going to do in a world where Meg Ryan and Dennis Quaid aren't together? Like, what happened if, like, Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell broke up? Right. Or, it's like, not like they're Tom and Rita, guys. Or, like, Brad and Gwyneth, even. I did say Gwyneth. I'm so sorry. Somebody, one of our readers, pointed out that Chris says Gwyneth correctly. And I think it's just, like, my, it's my flat. Unintentionally. Uh, it's my accent that I think flattens it out to Gwyneth. Even though I am fully aware that it's Gwyneth with a Y first and then whatever. Anyway, sorry. But it's not yeah. like it was Brad and Ms. Paltrow. Um, which I think was a much shorter relationship. But I think people had invested a lot in it, sort of uh, People Magazine-wise. I just think that there is a certain element that like, you kind of have to discuss with that in terms of the way this movie was received that maybe people wouldn't have been so virulent in hating or at least mocking Meg Ryan for this movie if it was some, you know, indie character piece that doesn't have yeah. all these sexual elements of it. One thing I thought was interesting as I watched it was I remember at the time being very aware and very kind of struck by Meg Ryan having gotten lip injections for this movie. And I remember being like, ugh, like crestfallen. And that being like a topic of conversation and, you know, as, you know, contributory to like, oh, what is Meg Ryan doing? She's, you know, she's making sex movies and she's getting plastic surgery. She must be in a spiral. And watching it now, I'm just like, she looks fine. She looks lovely. She looks wonderful. And maybe part of that is like, you know, it would get more intense as years go on. And so... Yeah, it was the beginning of that conversation where people thought it was publicly, like, okay to just bash actresses for doing that. Like, it's... Everybody had that conversation because it was made so acceptable by the press and yeah. yeah. I mean, like again, looping back to Nicole Kidman, Nicole Kidman got it the worst. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it would be like right after this, this time kind of, what do you, how do you think she does in this movie? Do you, did you find yourself sort of wondering what the Kidman version of this movie would be? I think Meg Ryan is good, but not great in this movie. I think she's pretty great. I think it is not always serving her. She would probably make my best actress ballot. Okay. Um I think it's I think it's surprisingly a really low key performance yes. and the things that are good about it are drawing out what her natural abilities are, what makes her such a compelling performer just like existing um in the frame, um like in whatever the situation she's in. I don't think it's I my memory of this movie because I think I'd watched it in college and maybe I was half watching it 
like I was expecting on this rewatch something more flashy. It's really not a flashy performance. No. But at the same time, I think what she's asked to do is incredibly difficult to pull off, and I think she pulls it off in a way that's very compelling. So I, I think, think that's right. Great. I think she makes the most of the the scant opportunities to really sort of zhuzh up a line reading, let's say. Or like mm-hmm. I I went and read our friend Nick Davis's review of in the cut that he wrote at the time of its release and he mentioned in the in the review he mentions the way she says did you kill her and i read the review like while i was watching the beginning of the movie so i hadn't gotten to that part yet and i'm like that's really interesting to sort of like mention such a mundane sort of like uh you know just a very transactional kind of a phrase and then you get to that point in the movie and it's when she finds it's not when she finds the charm on Ruffalo, but it's when they're in the police station and Ruffalo is talking about the murder scene of uh, of Pauline of her sister, and she does when they when he mentions that he had a key to the apartment to get in, and she just goes, "Did you kill her?" and 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 it's. It's every bit what Nick was saying about like, oh, like, yeah, like this is her, this is her moment where the guard is down and she's really putting, you know, a spin on this line. And it doesn't feel showy, but it feels incredibly emotional. It feels like the movie really, really deepens for those like mm-hmm. that second and a half. And she does that a few times in the movie. And I think from a 2019 perspective, I think the sex scenes are less remarkable and which is unavoidable like we've seen you know movies get more sexually explicit and i think we're so far removed from the idea of meg ryan as this always cute always sort of perky romantic comedy queen it's not shocking to see her in these scenes as it would i I was trying to think of like who would be the equivalent today of if we saw an actress filming these, you know, this kind of a movie that we would react similarly. I don't know if there's an example because we have seen actresses do that. Like, we've seen Jennifer Lawrence do it. Right. And it wasn't shocking. We've seen, though I guess that's a whole loaded conversation. Passengers? Um, Yes, it is. (laughs) Um, But I was thinking, like, Emma Stone or, like, but Emma Stone had the favorite. She did nudity and that, and it wasn't a big deal. Though I suppose it wasn't very sexually explicit. Yeah, I think I think because I think part but of the thing forward. part of the thing within the cut is it's not just that it's sex, but it's um, sex in a way that sort of lays her character out for vulnerability and danger. Mm-hmm. That she kind of that the sex is potentially at any moment could become. At any point in the sex scene with her and Ruffalo, he could kill her and the movie would be like, yes, that's what we were leading up to the whole time. And I think the audience, knowing that, puts a lot on that character of, why are you doing this? You're being foolish. I think this movie invites the audience, and I think in a knowing way, to judge her character You mentioned this in the preamble to the movie, and I very intentionally, after I watched this movie, I immediately wanted to watch Elle again. So I like double featured this with Elle in a way that I think both of these movies are actively kind of, 
the wisdom of these movies is that they are actively, like, how do I want to phrase this? They are not antagonizing the audience, but they are playing into, like, the social norms that are oppressive that we expect characters to behave. And that's why these movies shock us. Yeah. Because, like, it lays it on... There's a lot of red herrings in this movie, but it lays it on very thick that it wants us to expect that Mark Ruffalo is the killer. Yes. And, like, the second we see him, we're supposed to expect this. And it's like, he comes into the movie very suspiciously with how he is, We've seen enough movies by this point, enough sort of erotic thrillers where the cop is the killer, that... We know to look or out the sexual for partner ends up being the right, killer. Right, right, or, or that both. type of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It plays into our expectation of that, but what it's really playing into, like you mentioned, is our the movie's expectation of us to judge her for that. Yes, and that's what the movie is really interested in unpacking, and I think the same is true for Elle as well. Um, yes, which is why I think it's important that she ends up. Not only, like, I mean, we're fully spoiling this movie at this point, but, like, it's been a while. Um, She ends up being able to sort of dispatch of the partner, the cop partner, the actual killer, without too much sort of near-death harm to her. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like in Mm -hmm. another movie, you would find her, like, almost to the brink of getting killed, and then she would get bailed out by either someone else or, you know... You know, she would end up, you know, find having a weapon in her hand or whatever. But in this, while she finds herself in definite danger, and there's definitely the moment where it sort of dawns on her that she might have ended up in this place where she'll never get out of, and she'll, you know, this is going to be the end for her. But it never, like, gets her to the brink of, like, getting choked to death or whatever. Yeah. And I think that's important because I don't think the audience should be able to sort of linger in that space of like, well, like this is what happens when you act stupid. You know what I mean? Or be like let off of the hook of all of the things that the film is challenging us with and especially challenging our perceptions by making it be this like super tidy, like yeah. movie plotting right. essentially. Right, right. And I'm glad that Ruffalo never gets out of the handcuffs and has and is able to come and save. Like that's important. That it's ultimately, yes. you know, she does end up saving herself, which feels trite, but it's <laughs> it's important. I really loved Meg Ryan. I think the best. I think the sex scenes are very, you know, they're not bad. They are, you know, she performs well in them. But I think it's the scenes with her and Jennifer Jason Lee, the sort of sister scenes, that feel the most effective, and I think the most. Like, I don't know. Like, that's that's Meg Ryan really coming through in a way that the movie needs her to in terms of she forms this very specific bond with Jennifer Jason Lee. You can see them as sisters, You could, but you see them as half-sisters, which I think is, like, a tricky distinction to make sometimes. Yeah, we haven't really... I don't think we've mentioned at all this relationship that is mentioned with their shared father who was who abandoned them essentially. Um, And you see these weird kind of like poetic flashbacks with ice skating that are supposed to represent (laughs) him. But you're right that their relationship is rather specific. And I think they draw it very interestingly. Yeah. um, In that it's not, 
the kind of sibling bond that we see. I I have to say, I found, while Jennifer Jason Lee is great, because she is always great, I fully was confused by who Pauline was. What yeah, you texted me at one point, was, and was just like, is she supposed to be a hooker? And I'm like, I don't think so. Or like, is she some type of sex worker? No, it's she's trying confusing. to nail down that dentist or whatever. Um, right, but like, they, she... It's because she live. You see, Patrice O'Neill. She lives uh, at a flop days. house, right? That's sort yes, of the thing. Yes. yes. So, like, that was a little confusing. Yes. The way that she had already been portrayed, if she was a sex worker. Can not. I read you a quote? I read the. I mentioned the Manola Dargis, um, that she was a sort of high-profile defender of this movie. So I read her whole review, and she mentions Pauline, the character Jennifer Jason Lee plays, and she describes her as looking as lush as overripe fruit and just as easy to bruise, which A, is a great way to describe that character, but B, made me want to re- like quit my job and take up anything else because I will never, <laughs> ever write anything as well as that sort of, you know, non-essential, you know, sort of like tossed off line in the middle of a Manola Dargis in, uh, review of a 2003 movie that nobody really liked very much. Like, it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. It's utterly, it, I am incapable. So well done. <laughs> well done on that. Uh, I wanted to, when circling back for a second, talking about the trope of, the the lover in the sex thriller being the killer or the cop in the sex thriller being the killer and i was like wait a second there was a movie where it was both and it was have you ever seen eyes of laura mars uh, i've it, it's a legend but i have not seen that it. is a movie and that's another new york movie in the 70s or maybe it was like right at 1980 but um no 78 and that is a movie that feels like an antecedent to this movie. It's less grounded in reality, obviously, because there's the whole thing about uh, Faye Dunaway is a fashion photographer who starts getting visions of murders. She sees through the eyes of this killer. It was written by John Carpenter. And I think it was directed, yeah, directed by Irvin Kirshner, who directed The Empire Strikes Back, which is interesting. So, but that is a movie where Faye Dunaway is is gets involved with the cop on the case played by Tommy Lee Jones and Tommy Lee Jones ends up being the killer. And so again, spoiler, but like watch the movie anyway, cause it's fucking amazing. Right. And I'm sure you, you know at the point anyway, that he is the killer. So yeah, but it's how dare you spoil a movie that's 40 years old. <laughs> God. Okay. I have to mention this because I think it is crucial in how this movie was received and interpreted because you mentioned that, the eyes of Laura Mars is less rooted in reality is in the cut rooted in reality. Well, because I think this movie has a, if I have like a criticism, that's also a thing I love about this movie. I don't know if this movie is fully formed and how much it wants to exist in the abstract and not. Some of the reviews at the time did touch on this. I, I do feel like it is rooted more in reality than it is not. I know there are the sort of those, fantastical scenes of the ice skating uh, couple that end up being... And her being inspired by this, like, mystical poetry that's on the subway, MTA. Yeah, on the subway ads. I, because, like, that's A, not a thing that exists. B, right. it's, it's so, like, interior in a way that feels like 
there is an element to this that is like going on inside of her head. Like I think that all of the things that happen are things that happen, but it's so rooted in her experience and her I'll say impressions this. of things. I think it's a very impressionist film. I think impressionist makes sense. I think the fact that all of this murder seems to be circling right around her mm-hmm. and she doesn't react strongly to it at first. Like she's just sort of just like when he's like, there was a body part that ended up in your, in the garden out back behind your apartment and she just doesn't react to it at all. I was like, yeah. huh. Um, so I think there's a, she's a New Yorker fears her life, well, <laughs> but I do feel like this movie, I mean, a couple of the reviews said that it doesn't recogn- it doesn't resemble any kind of version of New York that actually exists. And I actually don't think that's true. I think there I is, highly disagree with that. I think it really does resemble, um, actual New York and actual life. But I do, I think it's, I mean, it's Campion sort of painting with the brush that she often paints with, which is. There's the story at the center of this that is going to be as, you know, as real as possible. She's never going to give you the out of it was all a dream or it's all in her head or whatever. But I think, yeah, I think you're going to end up with scenes that feel like they are brushing against the edge of would that really happen that way? It's not even like it's not even like. Things are unrealistic to me. I think it's more that there is like the movie is trying to both be the thing that it is critiquing and being this kind of poetic abstraction in a way that like those two things don't always mesh. And I found that like frustrating while making the movie even interesting to watch. All right. Let's get let's jump into the cast and why this movie got the kind of Oscar buzz that it did. Because as I mentioned, it was sort of the bottom of a slippery slope for Jane Campion and that The Portrait of a Lady got disappointed reviews, although it still got the Best Supporting Actress nomination for Barbara Hershey. Then Holy Smoke was completely ignored. And when it wasn't ignored, it wasn't taken very well. Um, That had even worse reviews than the portrait of a lady did and then in the cut somehow ended up being even worse reviews so it wasn't until bright star in 2009 that campion was essentially able to rebound but i think the oscar buzz from this movie was a testament to just how much of an impact jane campion's the piano had in 1993 being the second woman ever to be nominated for best director winning for not only holly hunter but also anna paquin it was a major major impact oscar movie and because of that even after the portrait of a lady even after holy smoke people are like oh jane campion's working with meg ryan this could be big and we, as I said, we talked about the Meg Ryan thing when we talked about Courage Under Fire, but this is a full seven years, even past Courage Under Fire. So at this point, this really felt like it's going to happen for Meg Ryan or it's never going to happen. She's never stepped out of her comfort zone more than she is for this movie. She's working with a director who like allowed Holly Hunter to steamroll to an Oscar win if it's going to happen for Meg Ryan, it's going to happen here. And it didn't happen. And then ultimately, I think after this movie, people were like, well, it's never going to happen. And thus far, unfortunately, that's borne out. 
I we a few months ago, or maybe it was like even a month ago, because things happen so fast. Um, there was that New York Times profile. It was New York Times, right? With Meg Ryan. That makes sense. And she, um, there's a certain level of it that, like, a, it was a great interview, and we love Meg Ryan. There was a certain aspect she, pro, she, um, talked about that she was never the actress who loved acting mm-hmm. in a way that, or like it might have been actually like not I read that and I was like she probably meant something a nuance that is hard to break down into a quote but she was not the person who was gung-ho about like you know getting the type of roles that would get somebody an Oscar that type of thing yeah or, let me get to the the part of that article. I looked it up. It was from the Times, New York Times Magazine, um, in February. Let me get to the part where they talk about it in the cut. Hold on, because I think that's interesting, and I'm glad you brought it up. And I probably should have looked this up. There's at least the suggestion that she wasn't interested in playing that part of the game. She's interested in doing like interesting work, but the suggestion to me that I inferred from what she was saying was that was never in the game for her. What was from never what in the game she, what, what her ambitions were, were getting like the type of roles that get people Oscars. So in this times profile, she mentions that when she did in the cut, she said the reaction was vicious and that she says, I'm going to quote from this article, she says, I feel like that might have been the last movie that I did. I was surprised by the negative reaction. I loved the movie. I loved the experience and loved Jane Campion. When I went to England, she mentions the the interview she did on Parkinson's show in England, Michael Parkinson's show, which if you watch it, it's very, he's very hung up on the nudity and the sex scenes and it's very sort of this you know shocked and and not great you know treatment of her of meg ryan in this interview especially how what how much he lingers on the the sex that she's doing in the cut she says back to back to the article she says in the cut was a sexual thing and sex throws people i'd never presented myself like that before it was so different from my assigned archetype probably i had a very neutered image Carrie Fisher was the one who said, no, 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 when you betray your archetype by doing a movie like that and by getting divorced, you can't. Uh, Meg then says, in the cut felt like a real turning point for when you are known as America's sweetheart. It doesn't allow for the full expression of a person, but that's what movie stardom is. There's a blankness required. So it feels like even now... Meg Ryan looks at In the Cut as the turning point that we also see it as. Like, it doesn't yeah. feel like, you know, this is, we're, we're building up something that wasn't, that it really, the reaction to this movie being as negative as it was, and p- particularly about her, did, like, kind of kill her career. In a way that, like, it ties in all of her career, but I think the the key hypocrisy in all of this to me is, like, her big role, like, the thing that made her a superstar and, like, continues to be part of her, a huge part of her legacy is that she got famous playing a role, like, 
vocally faking an yes. orgasm. Yes. Why is it such a problem? Well, because I think the for, joke. I mean, of like that it's was... a different type of sexuality. It's a different type of sexuality. But that movie is frank in its own way about sexuality. It like, is. I don't. But that joke is how ridiculous that a woman this sweet and this cute and this lovable could possibly be that sexually, you know, be be momentarily seen in that intensely sexual uh, a, a moment. You know what I mean? That vocally sexual. And I think that's Meg Ryan. But she's pulling the rug out from under that expectation in that scene, I think. In that, like, you know, she's the one that's actually proving that notion wrong. Yes. I don't know. I still feel But like... maybe audiences aren't that smart. I don't well, know. Well, I mean, that's probably true. So... Beyond Meg Ryan, though, you also had, I think there was a lot of buzz on Jennifer Jason Lee for a supporting actress possibility. Again, if we're following the, look, the, the Looking for Mr. Goodbar template, Jennifer Jason Lee is your Tuesday Weld. So mm-hmm. there was precedent there. I think she's very good in it. You know, Manola certainly thinks she's very good in it. Uh, you seem like you're a little less sold on the character, but I think... Let's let's in a way that Franny eventually clicks for me uh-huh. in the performance that Meg Ryan does. I think I I like I love Jennifer Jason Lee. I will just watch her like talk about whatever, but yeah. like I don't understand who Pauline is other than pining for this married man. Yeah. All right, I want to go through Jennifer Jason Lee's filmography for a second because this is the first time, right? This is the first time we've gotten a chance to talk about her. Yeah, we haven't talked about her before, and she's actually really interesting, and I think part of the reason we haven't gotten a chance to talk about her is, at this point, like, this is maybe the Oscar killer conversation for her, at least until Margot and the Wedding happens, but, like, part of the reason we haven't talked about Jennifer Jason Lee is I think she's more of an Oscar conversation for the 90s. Oh, um, very that much a lot so. of her close calls happened in the 90s. So I want to go through her uh, sort of a selected Jennifer Jason Lee for the moment. We, I don't want to get into the whole thing. But like she breaks onto the scene. She's in Fast Times at Ridgemont High in 1989 or 1982. I think her big awards-y sort of happens with the sort of one-two punch of Last Exit to Brooklyn in 1989 and then Miami Blues in 1990 for which she gets a bunch of critics awards and nominations. Boston Society of Film Critics winner. New York Society of Film Critics that she won for both Miami Blues and Last Exit to Brooklyn. And a whole bunch of, if not specific Oscar buzz at the time, then at least like, oh, this woman is like, she is now on the map for she's going to win an award one day because she's that good and her choices are that exciting. She's in Backdraft and Rush in 1991, which Rush is an interesting movie in that it seems like it would have gotten a lot of Oscar buzz, but I think it almost entirely was subsumed by the Eric Clapton song. Yeah. Right? Like Tears in Heaven was like mostly what we know about that. 1992, she does Single White Female, which I think announces her as a presence to the mainstream audience because that movie was such a thing and she's so good in that movie and scary and whatever the 93 is shortcuts which she's great along with everybody else in that movie i think 
it's easy. Nobody was able to ever really emerge from that movie. Like, try picking one supporting actress to support in shortcuts. Like, it's an impossible when task. When everyone's amazing. When everyone's amazing. And you've got so many. Julianne Moore, Francis McDormand, um, Madeline Stowe, everybody. Lily Tomlin. Mine would be Lily Tomlin. Yeah, she's great. So, but, you know, again, she's part of that sorority. So, truly, that's good for her. 1994, The Hudsucker Proxy and Mrs. Parker in the Vicious Circle, which is very interesting because she gets a bunch of critics' awards for Mrs. Parker in the Vicious Circle. She's playing Dorothy Parker. 1994 is a famously scattershot year for Best Actress. I wouldn't call it a thin year because I, you know, whatever, that's, that's insulting and not true. But that's the year where, like, that Oscars took a lot of reaches that year. That's they nominated Susan Sarandon for The Client when I love that movie and I love that performance and I love when they will, you know, give an actress a nomination for something that feels crowd-pleasy, but it did feel like they were reaching for that. Um, Miranda Richardson and Tom and Viv, which is a movie that zero people saw, got a nomination. And Jessica Lange ends up winning for, as we've mentioned before, Blue Sky, a movie that had sat on the shelf for like four years and also nobody ever saw. So... It's the final vestiges of Orion Pictures. Right. So it's odd that this actress, Jennifer Jason Lee, who had been building up such momentum for like five years and got a whole bunch of critics' attention, never got onto that best actress lineup. Also, Hudsucker Proxy, I think, is one of her best performances. It's an incredibly divisive performance because it is so big and stylized and purposefully obnoxious she's got that that's the one where she plays the reporter who you know i'll stake my pulitzer on it like that whole thing so um i don't know i don't know how you feel about jennifer jason lee up to this point but what i feel about jennifer jason lee at this point comes with her very next movie and that is dolores claiborne oh wow i thought you were gonna say georgia because again 95 is a big two two person two movie year for her the the popular one is Dolores Claiborne, and then the more esoteric one is Georgia. Which Mayor Winningham got her Which Mayor Winningham for. got her supporting actress nomination for. But in Georgia, she plays this sort of Courtney Love-esque lead singer. And then in Dolores Claiborne, she is the resentful adult daughter of Kathy Bates. She's phenomenal in both of those movies. 95 is a little less of an open field in terms of being baffled that she couldn't break that lineup. The 95 Best Actress list is, as I've mentioned a bunch here before, one of the famously great ones. That was Sarandon wins for Dead Man Walking, Streep nominated for Bridges of Madison County, um, Sharon Stone for Casino, Emma Thompson for Sense and Sensibility, and Elizabeth Shue for Leaving Las Vegas, which is like at least two of those performances and maybe three are like the best work of that actress's career. And mm-hmm. there's just like there's no there's no dents in that. And so people like Jennifer Jason Lee in Georgia or uh, Kathy Bates and Dolores Claiborne, you know, it's or Annette Benning in The American President. Like there's so many people, so many women who could have been nominated in 95 and probably in a perfect world should have been, but like the competition was so fierce. Yes. <laughs> and this, I think, um, well, next we also have famously teased that we will do this 
movie eventually. Next is A Thousand Acres, Thousand Acres in, in 97. Yes. But after that, I think it starts kind of slipping away into more interesting directorial choices and smaller roles where it's like the conversation for Oscar for her kind of right. dies out. You're never going to get an Oscar buzz campaign for Existence, even though I think she's great. David Cronenberg's Existence, which is a movie that if you have not seen it, seek it out. It's super weird and fucked up and great. Um, it's been on Hulu for a hot minute. Yeah, oh, I love it. She co-directed the anniversary party with Alan Cumming, who at least at the time they were like full on like BFFs, Jennifer Jason Lee and Alan Cumming. Like that was a whole sort of from like, doing cabaret together. Is Listen, that true? If you, I didn't yes. realize that she did cabaret. I think after she played Natasha. Yes, for not. I don't think she had a very long run. Huh. But if you want to see a movie where Phoebe Cates takes ecstasy, <laughs> a bunch of other people drop some E. See the anniversary party. It's a good movie. See the anniversary I enjoy party. that movie. But yeah, then it's like Road to Perdition. She gets a very sort of small and thankless role in Road to Perdition. And then after in the cut, it's like thankless role in the, the machinist, thankless role in the jacket. Um, we'll talk about Margot at the wedding at some point. Margot at the wedding should have been it for her. Yeah. So good. So I had I had mentioned before that I, I it bugs me that the Hateful Eight is her one Oscar nomination, and the ones that I would have for her are movies like Hudsucker and Georgia. And it sounds like Margot at the Wedding is the one for you, if nothing else. Yes. Yeah. I and before we tie the the bow on Jennifer Jason Lee, though, how did you like her in Annihilation and how much did you like her in Annihilation? I love <laughs> I liked her everyone in Annihilation. in Annihilation. Annihilation deserved so much better than it got. Uh, um, best line reading of the term Annihilation. Yeah, Annihilation. Annihilation. Our <laughs> bodies and our minds will be fragmented into their smallest parts until not one part remains. Annihilation. And then Bwom. light um, bursts from every orifice. Yes. Annihilation. Um, yeah, I love love her. Love Jennifer Jason Lee. Will highly, you know, support her in anything going forward. Entirely. But what do we think about her in In the Cut, though? Is this... I th- I mean, I think she's very typical Jennifer Jason Lee in that she's watchable, very natural. Um, I don't know why she's in this role. It feels like the movie... She feels like a tangent that the movie goes on whenever she's there, but not necessarily the characters to keyed into its themes or at least that's my read on it yeah so i she doesn't feel like as crucial as a part of the conversation around this movie as she was expected to be i think that's right i think ultimately that character goes away for too long do you know what i mean and when she she serves a function in it like it's it's to make her it's to make one of the murders of this serial killer hit closer to home for franny right um, and like you just mentioned, like Jennifer Jason Lee has a lot of throwaway roles, and as much as I love her, and as as like good as I think she is in the movie, I I think this is just another one of them. Yeah, 
So the th- just in a more interesting way. The third major cast member in this is Mark Ruffalo, which there's not as much to talk about in the span between when he became Oscar buzzy and this movie. It's only really his second major movie since You Can Count on Me at this point. After You Can mm-hmm. Count on Me, the next year he was in that movie The Last Castle, which we very well may end up covering on this head Oscar buzz because it is a classic this had Oscar buzz movie in terms of, you know, the, the possibilities were strong and we, we sort of started writing a lot of the narratives of this movie before anybody saw it. That's Robert Redford is at a military prison and James Gandolfini is the kind of totalitarian uh, overseer of this place. This was at the, at an early cresting of Sopranos fame for James Mm -hmm. Gandolfini, so a lot of people thought that it would be a possibility for him. Robert Redford always gets Oscar buzz for basically anything he does. I think The Last Castle is also a very prototypical movie for us because it's probably the only way you can discuss that movie is within the context of what we do here. It has no lasting cultural impact. That's our bread and butter, baby. No one even remembers that movie. That is what we are here for. But so Ruffalo's in that. Ruffalo is very, very much the sort of receding third cast member. He does not demand a whole lot of attention for himself. I don't think he's bad in that movie, but he feels lost in that movie a lot of the time. I don't think he quite knew how to make space for himself alongside Redford and Gandolfini. And then, with the exception of smaller movies like XXXY, which is a movie that I would always see on the shelves at video stores and be confused uh, intrigued by because it's Ruffalo and someone else naked in bed or whatever. And I'm like, Oh, Mark Ruffalo in a sex something, but I've never seen that movie. And then small role in wind talkers. And then this small movie, my life without me, which I never can pronounce. Isabel Quasay. Let's say that Isabel Quasance last name. Uh, my life without me, but that's a movie that I saw because <laughs> I offensive. love Sarah Polly so much, and yes. it is a boring movie about a woman who is dying who wants to not tell anybody that she's dying. It's a bummer, and you shouldn't see it. And then 2003 comes along, and it's in the cut. And so I think our bullishness on in the cut as a Ruffalo movie was well, he's so great and you can count on me. And now he seems to be playing so much against type, much like the Meg Ryan thing. And ultimately, this is never going to be the kind of role that's going to get anybody an Oscar nomination. So it's not really a No, because he spent half of his dialogue is talking about all of the like sexual things he's going to do to you, which like, if only Oscar would go there, because I want Mark Ruffalo to only play those roles. Half of his dialogue is spoken directly into Meg Ryan's butt. As he's yep, uh, exactly performing, performing on her in in unspecified ways, he really goes for it. Though I will say, also, this is the rare movie where you see Mark Ruffalo butt and Mark Ruffalo penis, mm-hmm. and in a way that like that's that's him. Like there is as I am um, uh, as I crudely text Joseph <laughs> and a few other gay people. Um, once I got to that scene, I was like, oh, uh, Mark Ruffalo is, uh, is a pizza and it is a meat lover's pizza. <laughs> um, 
Mark Ruffalo enthusiastically eats Meg Ryan's butt in this movie, and it is a thing It's to not see. delivery, it is DiGiorno. <laughs> it's truthfully, it's inspiring in that kind of way where like all straight men should should take a cue from Mark Ruffalo in the way that he goes to town on her. This is, you know, and it's his later it's, dialogue. She asks him what woman taught him that. And I was confused. I was like, is he, which, which one is he talking about? <laughs> is it the butt? Right. Or is it the, not the butt? It's also either way, the least menacing he ever is towards her is when he's doing that. So exactly. Lessons That's the abound. thing. Like it's such a, like we already talked about how he's supposed to be this like glaring red herring to be the killer. And like, that's the whole point of their sexual relationship but like genuinely also he's pretty terrible as a person like there's a bluntness to him that just like strays the line of smart he doesn't seem nice like there's really not a whole lot to recommend him except for when they fuck him like yeah like there's something about it that like is still so hot that I feel in this really complicated way. Like I should hate you, but I want you to put that mustache on me. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Also, she has sex with him after she gets m- almost mugged. Well, does get mugged, but like gets away from the guy. And yeah. then the next day when she meets up with Pauline at the coffee shop and Pauline sort of makes a comment about like, um, she's like, you know, all that, that whole ordeal. And then he, and then, um, you had sex with him or basically implying that just like, I can't believe he, he tried to have sex with you after he put the moves on you after you had been mugged. And she was basically just like, no, I wanted it. And I like, which goes back to the whole thing of like, we are supposed to be shocked that she behaves in this way. And the movie is directly kind of challenging that yes and making us ask why we have those things there is a degree to us. which i would say if i were less charitably inclined to this movie i would say well the movie's trying to have it's have it both ways which is the movie wants you to be titillated and scandalized by the kind of sex that you see this movie especially with this actress and yet is also defiantly shrugging its shoulders at every point about like what you know about that sex and about you know that we shouldn't take it so seriously that we shouldn't think it's a big deal that this woman would want to have sex of course a woman would want to have sex it's only you know it's to her pleasure or whatever which is all true but i think if the movie weren't working for me i would probably be a little bit more annoyed at this kind of like you know, ooh, be scandalized, but also shame on you for being scandalized, that kind of thing. And I think it's an important conversation to have and to talk about those themes, particularly in relationship to Mark Ruffalo's performance, because I think Mark Ruffalo is really, like you said, he just kind of goes for it. It's like he, clearly the performance is unafraid to hold this tension between all of those themes and to, like, directly... yeah. I mean, like, I keep just using the word challenge, but to challenge, like, us as an audience in a way that, like, he's kind of a gross guy, yeah. but, like... It's one of the rare performances, and I can't really think of any others at this at this point, that runs counter to, and, like, I think consciously runs counter to Ruffalo's sort of innate 
likability, amiability kind of thing. Like, I think it's very hard for me to not like Mark Ruffalo because I feel like he's... I don't know if that's a cult... Is that If that's a perception he had really cultivated, though, because, like, he wasn't... He's so I wouldn't say he was famous at the time. I don't know. Maybe that's But he's me. also like a fuck up in that movie. He is. I do think it there's a lot of parallels to me. I don't think he's in, necessarily like, the legacy of In the Cut and the legacy of You Can Count on Me and that like he is both way better in both of those movies than like the discussion around those movies would lead you to believe because when we talk yeah. about You Can Count on Me, we talk about Laura Linney and maybe Kenneth Lonergan never mention how great Mark Ruffalo is. When you talk about In the Cut, it's the same thing, and you never mention how great Mark Ruffalo is in this movie. I think he's authentically incredible in this movie. I think it's not necessarily that he was playing off of that image of him at the time, but I just think it's interesting in retrospect that you look at his career, where the only other role, as I sort of scroll through all his others, that kind of deliberately tries to run counter to that, or not deliberately, but like does run counter to that, is his small role in Margaret, mm-hmm. right? And everything else, it's it's just like, oh, he's, you know, he's such a good guy. He's such a nice guy. He's adorable. It is a little surprising that, like, at least nothing that comes to mind, that Mark Ruffalo hasn't played, like, a racist in a movie or something. Right. Remember when he was the, the real bad guy in uh, Now You See Me? Did I see Now You See Me? Right? Oh, yeah. He is the bad guy. I'm not making that up, right? He's the cop. And it turns, speaking of the cop did it. Hold on. I got to look up Now You See Me on Wikipedia. But I'm pretty sure. Talk about a movie with no lasting cultural impact. <laughs> oh, my God. For real. Well, I never forgave it for t- not titling its uh, sequel, Now You Don't. But that's fine. Uh-oh. I mean, maybe part of what I'm impressed by his performance is because now we see him as this, like, lovable guy. Um, and, like, this, like, cuddly teddy bear. Yeah, yeah. Mark Ruffalo was the mastermind like behind the... the whole heist, and, and now you see me. There we go. Anyway, yeah. sorry. Well, in this movie, I mean, like, he's a teddy bear, but maybe not a cuddly one. <laughs> yeah, no, well, <laughs> listen, we'll all do, we'll all think about what we would do to that cuddly Mark Ruffalo teddy bear in this movie. Sorry, this movie is asking for me to objectify him, and so oh, I will. fully. And thank God. Thank God for Jane Campion making us objectify Mark Ruffalo. I feel like, and you've kind of, you mentioned this to me too, I feel like the gay Twitterverse has not discovered Mark Ruffalo in this movie. And if they ever do, they'll all die of horniness. Like it's, it'll collapse. Like there are not enough, you know, not enough A's to put in dad for the response to Mark Ruffalo. There are not, there are not enough limbs on this world that people will ask him to break for gay Twitter to reply, to, to, to interact with Mark Ruffalo in, in, in the cut. Is what I will say. If, if any listeners at home think that we are pushing the thirst for Mark Ruffalo too far in this I episode, say not far I enough. Would like to, I would like to point you to all of the gross objectification that was done towards Meg Ryan when this movie was coming out. I don't feel like we fully unpacked the whole thing of, I, I mean, we've talked about it in other episodes of like this gross like thing where it's like considered risk and like, I don't know prestige to have this degree of nudity for a certain kind of actress but like 
the lasciviousness, and I think it's probably also the time that this movie happened and, like, the way the internet was emerging of, like, the Mr. Skin of it all <laughs> probably is a matter of timing. Yeah. That she was tre- treated so disgustingly for this movie. The Mr. Skin of it all. That's a good point. Yeah. It's... I always enjoy... I... I, I uh, I sit a little easier in watching in the cut in knowing that none of that kind of titillation is intentional. It's a little, it's nice to sort of be able to just be like, well, you know, at least Jane Campion wasn't intending that. I also enjoy a movie where a woman is masturbating and not for your pleasure. (laughs) You know what I mean? Right. Where it's just sort of like, you might as well not even be here. And like, it reminded me of, Mulholland Drive when Naomi Watts is like sob sob fingering herself and it was just like yeah this is not for you to get turned on by this is a character moment and we're just going to let that happen talk about a mood talk about a mood indeed okay so we have been going for quite a while before we hit the IMDB game there are two pieces of miscellaneous I wanted to cover one of which is least surprising F cinema score rating ever for in the cut, at least until at least until mother came along. Well, because like we've talked about this cinema score is not about what people think about the movie. It's how it fulfills their expectations. I think this movie does not, it might get like a D cinema score, but it doesn't get an F cinema score. If you don't release it wide on Halloween. Yeah, that's a good point. Released wide on Halloween opposite last week's 2003 film, The Human Stain. What a shitty Halloween that must have been. <laughs> what if you went and saw both of those movies that day and then like came home and had to like hand out candy bars to little shitty kids? Yeah. What a day. What a terrible that's like day. The, that's like going around and getting the trick-or-treat and getting like the shitty candy that nobody wants. Yes. Yeah. Seriously. Ugh. Though it's actually not now true. I like this movie a lot. But like... What were they thinking? No, actually, I really liked In the Cut, but, like, I think people going to this movie expecting, like, what a fun, sexy time for you. Like, not so much. And also, maybe it's thrilling and scary in a way that, like, (laughs) I don't know. What were you thinking? The other thing I wanted to say is, on the trivia page on IMDb, it's such an odd little reach for a tidbit, but they mention that between Mark Ruffalo and in the cut and Scarlett Johansson in under the skin, they are the only two Avengers to do full frontal nudity. And you know what? Maybe you don't have to do full frontal nudity when you are America's ass. Prove us wrong. Chris Hemsworth and Chris Evans prove us wrong. All right. IMDb game. Explain it to the people. Okay, so we end all of our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other to the name the top four, also known as the known four, for any given performer on IMDb. Um, caveats being, uh, we will mention it, uh, there is voiceover work or television work. We try to avoid the aforementioned Marvel Cinematic Universe and Harry Potter. Those float to the top and it makes the game really boring. Um, we get two wrong guesses and then we give out years as a hint if that doesn't help we just have a free for all of hints free for all of hints yes all right all right so would you like to go first or guess first why don't i guess first okay so i uh went the jane campion route uh the aforementioned bright star 
the uh, period piece about poetry. Also a love story directed by Jane Campion. I went with Ben Wishaw for you. Just putting it out there, if you have not seen Bright Star, nestle yourself on your most comfortable sofa or chair or bed. Fix yourself a most pleasant drink and really just melt into Bright Star. It is so gorgeous. All right, Ben Wishaw. Joseph, that's precisely why I picked this for you, because I was like, I'm going to give him a minute to talk about Bright Star. Bright Star is my favorite Jane Campion movie. It's so good. I love it so much. Um, Ben Wishaw and Abby Cornish are both lovely opposite each other. Um, Ben Wishaw, no television? No television. All right, so not that uh, uh, either one of those miniseries that he did. Including the one where he does it with Hugh Grant, which I haven't seen yet, even though I should. A very British something or other. A very British scandal. Yeah, maybe. I came home to my husband watching it, and I think Ben Wishaw was yanking in a scene, and I was like, what you watching, honey? I thought you were going to be like, I came home to my husband, and he was fingering himself like Meg Ryan in the the cut (laughs) to Ben Wishaw in a very English scandal. Um, I do not have a mustache, so that is not the equation. (laughs) All right, so Ben... Wishaw, one of them is going to be Cloud Atlas. Cloud Atlas. So good in Cloud Atlas. One of Cloud them Atlas is going tent. to be, I can't remember what which at which James Bond movie he got introduced, but I'm going to say Spectre. Nope. No Spectre. Skyfall? No Skyfall. Fuck! That is two wrong <sighs> answers. Damn it. Ben Wishaw, the key performer that does not have his franchise movies on there. Granted, probably he is what eighth build in those movies. Yeah, it's true. I think wait, so has give... something to do with it. So your years, I will give you your years. You. you have two thousand and six, two thousand fifteen, and two thousand eighteen. Jesus Christ. Which means no bright star. Which means no. Is two thousand six perfume the story of a murderer? Two thousand six is perfume, the story of a murderer. Famously, right. like, ends with an orgy, right? I never saw that movie. Yeah, it does. But he plays the murderer. He does play the murderer. What are the other two? Uh, 2015 and 2018. 2018? So he was just in this movie. Right. It is the... I think we are getting to the point in 2019 where 2018 movies start showing up because it. I think it takes a while for these things to register for the algorithm. Okay. Famously. 2018, like, you want to talk about some feels, this movie. It's just like Ben Wishaw crying, oh. sitting alone. <laughs> it's Mary Poppins Returns. Fully ben excise that scene under any other performer. But, like, you know what? I want to sit. I want to watch Ben Wishaw sit in an attic and cry and try to sing. And it's no voice performances, right? No voice performances. So you 2015 have 2015 is not Paddington. Okay. Yes. I wonder if you forget that Ben Wishaw is in this movie. Ben okay. Wishaw has some great scenes in this movie and a particular bit that is so brutal, but you he's not anywhere near like the main conversation for this movie. And it's well after The Tempest. And it's long after Brideshead Revisited. This is a great movie. Long after I'm not there. 
I, I'm trying to give you a hint that's not going to fully give it away. Um, you said he's not he's not prominent in this movie. He's not prominent in the way that we discuss it. This is a movie that very much exists in like two halves, and he is in both halves, but he's more memorable for the first half. He does some self-harm to himself. Uh, the lobster. The lobster. The lobster. Famously bashes his face in to get uh-huh. nosebleeds, to connect with a girl so that they don't turn into animals. And then they I have children the and hate each other. Yeah. Boy, oh boy. Okay. Well, yes. Ben was shot and the lobster. I always forget, and I shouldn't. Okay. Well, I did okay. Now you will get a chance to do better than me, and I'm sure that you will. So we mentioned the Mark Ruffalo film, The Last Castle. We mentioned the one-time Oscar buzz for James Gandolfini in that movie. So why don't you do James Gandolfini? One of them is, of course, television. Which is The Sopranos. Yes. Um, Enough Said? Enough Said is one of them. The other movie that he got Oscar buzz for. Much, Fabulous. Much um, he didn't do a ton of movies slash did a lot of movies that we, that like just didn't register. So if, uh, you said no voice work, so probably not so where not the wild, where the wild things okay. are. Um, buying some time. For Mr. Gandolfini, um, in the loop. No, even though it should. Mm. That's strike one. What else was he in? I'm trying to think of things that he had, like, top billing for the Mexican? The Mexican is one of them, All yes. right. Uh, one left. Oh, I only have one left. Um, huh. Trying to think of what he's even in. It's not a ton of movies. It's not. Uh, but 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 his last movie, the one with the uh, Tom Hardy. What was it called? There was the dog in it. I was really worried about the dog. What is that movie? Um, with Tom Hardy, the 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 drop. The, the drop. drop. It is not the drop. It is not the drop. Not the drop. So you get a year. Your missing year is twenty twelve. Hmm. Sounds about right, but I don't know what it is. Is it Zero Dark Thirty? It is not, which is kind of surprising. He has a really small part in Zero Dark Thirty, though. He has three movies in 2012, and this would be the third one, I would guess, even though it's probably the second most famous movie of them. Hmm. Uh, it is a movie I have never seen because it the subject matter does not interest me to that extreme degree. Even though I really so it's loved, like a dude movie. Even though I really you loved like this director's movies. previous movie to this, despite uh, it also being a dude movie. This guy only makes dude movies. Is it like an action movie, dude movie? Not action. Or is it like on we? Dude movie? No. Comedy dude movie? No. What's the thing I hate most in in movies? It's just... No women. No women. That's one. That's definitely a thing. Yeah. Um, 
Who's the highest build woman in this movie? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Uh, and and the twelfth build first woman is credited as. Do you want to guess? Hooker. <laughs> of course she is. Oh God, what is this? Um, People seem to like this movie. They've assured me that it is pretty good, and I should just see it, but I haven't. That's not. Uh, I can't get it with that. Um. You like the other director? The top build star was also the most famous. Wait, the top build star was the titular star of this director's previous movie, even though there are two titular stars of this director's previous movie. Uh, two names in a movie title. Oh, is it uh, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford? Uh, is the movie you're talking about? Uh-huh. You're talking about Killing Them Softly. I am. A movie I have seen, but do not remember James Gandolfini being in. I think I remember, I like, Ben Mendelsohn for that movie. I mob movies. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a long year for The Irishman and you. Oh, yeah. I am not looking forward to The Irishman at all. Look yeah. at the cast for Killing Them Softly, though. Brad Pitt, love him. Scoot McNary, love him. Ben Mendelsohn, love him. Gandolfini, Richard Jenkins, Ray Liotta, Richie. Sam Shepard, and then this poor woman named Lenara Washington who has to play Hooker in the 12th build role. Dang. Dang indeed. What well if done. that's like, what if she's like a cop and that's her last name? I don't think so. That would also be sexist. Because the next build person is credited as poker guy. That's probably so. fair. Killing me, so- killing them soft. Not killing me softly. That is a movie with Heather Graham. Uh, killing them softly. Also, Wait, famously, really? um, an F Cinema Score movie. Really? Yes. That's interesting. I love that. I believe that you, so. <laughs> you connect "Killing Me Softly" to a 2002 Heather Graham Joseph Fiennes movie instead of like the song. Well, it's all connected to the song. Uh huh. Killing right. Me Softly, another sex. We're looping this back to more like sex thrillers. That is true. Good point. Well, way to bring it all back together, Chris. Well done. So that is our episode. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. As we said before, you never know when we're going to put up a poll about what movie we should cover next. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can find me on Twitter at Chris V file. That's F E I L. Um, I'm also on letterbox under the same name. I keep a running list of this had Oscar buzz titles. You can find direct links to the episodes once I've updated it and our IMDB game stats. And you can also find me writing weekly at the film experience. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. I'm also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed. Reed is also spelled R-E-I-D. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with iTunes visibility, so get your face out of Meg Ryan's ass and write us a nice review, won't you? That is all for this week, but we hope you will be back next week for more Buzz. Get it together and bring it back to
Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award as... Blah, 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 blah. All right. Try that again. Booty, 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 booty. Booty, 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 booty. Rock it everywhere. Rock it everywhere. Rock it everywhere. I found you, Miss Jane Campion. <laughs> <laughs> booty eaten. Booty eaten movie. Let's go watch. <laughs> let's go watch that booty eaten movie, girl. The- Jane Campion needs to put booty eating in every movie. Girl, he eat her ass, <laughs> Abby Cornish ate Ben Wishaw's ass. <laughs> oh, my God. <gasps> boy, oh, boy, would that quite be something. Might have um, kept me awake during Bright Star. <laughs> wait, did you not like Bright Star, you motherfucker? No, Bright Star's fine. I need to watch it again. Bright Star's fine. Get off of my podcast. All right. Um... <laughs> Your podcast. Now it is. You've forfeited it after Sam Brightstar is fine.